Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. I'm Sarah. And I'm Beth. We are lawyers, mothers, and host of the bipartisan podcast, Pantsuit Politics. Just as we differ in political philosophy, we've arranged our lives in very different ways, from our careers to where we live to our choices around marriage and family. But we have more in common than divides us. In a world that increasingly defaults to false dichotomies, we explore the messiness of living wisely. Choices, trade-offs, priorities, and grace of living a nuanced life. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us for another episode of The Nuanced Life. We want to thank you so much to everyone who has become a patron of The Nuanced Life. Patreon.com slash The Nuanced Life. For $5 a month, you get a bonus episode of The Nuanced Life every month. This month, we will be talking about summer reading, which Sarah is very excited about and I am begrudgingly coming along with, but I'm sure we'll turn it into something interesting. And I want to let you know, we haven't quite made our goal yet for The Nuanced Life, but because we really believe in the show and because so many of you are showing us that you do too, we are going to go ahead and invest in bringing our producer from Pantsuit Politics over to The Nuanced Life. We have been producing The Nuanced Life lives with our husbands and we are bringing Dylan Hello, Dylan. Welcome to the Nuance Life from Pantsuit Politics Over because we really want to keep trying to make the show more professional. So if you have not joined us on Patreon yet, we would love for you to do that and really appreciate all of you who have. We are also so excited about our new segment on commemorations. This was Beth's brilliant idea, and I find it to be brilliant in every sense of the word. We've talked about in the past that we don't find space in our culture for celebrations outside like the biggies weddings, baby showers, and then like you don't get another one until you die, basically, and you have a funeral, which I think is kind of a bummer. We did celebrate my father-in-law's retirement this weekend, so sometimes you get a good one if you... But you have to still have to be like the same job for 20 years to celebrate retirement. You need to... I think it should be more wide-ranging and more supportive of all kinds of life transitions. So that's what we're going to do on The Nuance Life. We're going to celebrate all kinds of things or grieve along with you about all kinds of things that get ignored or passed over in our culture. And it can be anything. It does not have to make sense to other people, Mm -hmm. which is kind of the point here, right? And I think we'll all feel a little less lonely when we start sharing these. And I want to thank our listener, Sarah, who reached out after seeing this on social media to say that she would like to share and celebrate that she has started going to therapy. Hooray, Sarah. Hooray, Sarah. Sarah says, I spent many years denying myself the help I needed and am proud that I am investing in myself, my health, and my future. You should be proud, girl. we are proud of you, too. Mm -hmm. God, I love therapy. I love therapy, too. I think therapy is so important. And we'll talk about this more in our main segment today because we are going to dive into kind of the aftermath of the deaths of Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain and the whole mental health conversation and specifically how friends do and don't support each other. 
But Sarah's message reminded me that there's still so much work to do to just make it a normal thing to see a therapist. And I applaud anyone who takes that first step. You will not regret it. I promise. Totally. If you don't like the first person you see, you go find somebody else. Like there is a person out there for you. That wears me out. People go once. They're like, oh, I just didn't click with the person. Yeah. You got to keep trying, friend. It's like getting a doctor. Like any other doctor. Sometimes you go to a doctor and you're like, I don't like, like you go to the dentist. You have a bad experience. You don't go stop going to the dentist. You just find a different dentist and therapy should be the same way. That's right. You got to find the person who clicks with you. And sometimes that takes a little bit of time and that is okay. It is worth it. So we wanted to share some listener feedback. This one is really timely. And I actually didn't know it was timely when it got sent. But Chelsea emailed us and said, have you either of you used futureme.org? I use it to send emails to my future self. My close friends and my parents might be fun for you to send notes to your children too. I like it more than other delayed delivery apps because you can't see the letter no matter what. I'm big on spoilers. I'm going to be so tempted to read it. I'm currently waiting on one from 2014. I find it's a nice way to be mindful of things changing in unexpected ways and trying to be excited for that uncertainty. So I do use future me, but usually I do it to like, if I see something really cool that like you could only do with a kid in middle school. Like I send it to myself when my kid's going to be in middle school because there's like no heck of no way I'm going to remember to do it when they're like five years from now when they're nine or whatever. So I've used it for that. And then what was so crazy, y'all, is that this weekend I got an email I sent to myself from futureme.org in like the vein of exactly what she's talking about. And I'd totally forgotten I'd sent it. But I wrote an email to myself in 2007 and said, Dear Future Me, I just graduated from law school and I'm still interning for free at Hillary for President. I'm starting to worry about finding a job. I just want to do what will best position me for my future role of running for office. I'm starting to get baby fever and I hope by the time I get this email, I have one or two. More than anything, I feel less unsure about the future and the road I'm traveling on. But I'm only 25 and like Oprah says, I'm right on track. Love me. And I'd like, not exactly what Chelsea said. I'd totally forgotten about it. And then it popped up in my inbox this weekend. It was amazing. It was so fun to read. And then here's a fun side note. I, I posted it and then I'm like, ooh, does that sound gross? How I'm like, position me for my future goal of running for office. And I'm like, no, you know what? No, there's nothing wrong with women wanting to be ambitious and wanting to run for office sometime in the future. Men are praised for that. And women think it feels icky, and I am going to put it out there as that is a perfectly acceptable goal for women to have even years in the future. So that's a unrelated, but sort of not to my future me email. I applaud you for that. I think Thank that's you. important and Thank a great you. example as well. So we got a bunch of feedback on the gender disappointment episode. Before we dive into that, I want to say that Christina, who is a doula, reached out and said, how many people have talked to you about the difference between gender versus sex since you put that episode? <laughs> and I was like, zero until you. But oh my gosh, I can't believe that that did not occur to me. Yeah, I'm really terrible at that. I mess that up all the time. I'll just be honest. Well, that's what I want to say. Like this is this is a learning area for us. And I hate that I didn't even think about that and that we didn't talk about it. Thank you, Christina, for highlighting it for us. And we will continue to work on learning and growing in that way. Yeah, that's a tough one, though, language-wise. Like, if you say sex disappointment, people aren't going to know what you're talking about. They're so we be like, you're disappointed you're not having together. any sex? <laughs> <laughs> There's yes, a lot I of am. different varieties of sex disappointment uh, going around. But, so but you know, true. like, we should have we talked about that distinction in this episode. And I hate that we missed it. And so thank you, Christina, for pointing that out. Yeah, I, d- I really wanted to say that I got so many beautiful messages from people who said either my spouse felt this and I didn't understand it or I felt this and I felt embarrassed to talk about it. 
And, you know, it was just as good for them to hear me say it. It was as good for me to hear their feedback because, as I told many people, even after all these years, it feels so good to know that I'm not alone and to think through um, my feelings on that. And, you know, I even had a little... I had some more sort of emotional insight after I had that conversation and thinking about it even more. And especially with all of your amazing feedback, really personal feedback. I really, really, really appreciate that. We also had um, Anya write in and said, thank you for sharing your vulnerable insight into your life. That episode got me wondering what your take on gender reveal parties. They seem to fly in the face of your philosophies about stuff, but they can be another way of introducing bonding with the child for the parents, especially in an era where transgender awareness is increasing. Gender reveal parties feel antiquated, yet they seem like a relatively modern phenomenon. I would love to hear you discuss these on your podcast. Oh, I got this, some thoughts on gender reveal parties. You want to go first, Beth? I guess it was, should, we should, first of all, we should call them sex reveal parties. Yeah, we should call them sex reveal parties. But again, that I'm, sounds dirty. <laughs> I'm super conflicted about this because on one hand, I am pro-celebration. Like we talked about at the beginning of the show. I don't think we celebrate enough. I am in favor of additional opportunities together with people that you love and share things that are important to you and create memories that are great for everybody. I also think that while it seems antiquated because of our developing understanding about transgender people, I also don't want to assume that discovering that a child is transgender negates the initial experience that you had with that child. Mm. You know, I have seen some parents of transgender children who I follow on social media still posting old pictures of their children as their biological sex, even as they have been very accepting and open and welcoming of those children once they identify with their new sex. So as a person who doesn't have personal experience parenting a transgender child, I just don't want to make any assumptions that are wrong Mm -hmm. about what that experience would be like. I also am kind of like, this is not a thing I would ever do. I think ultimately I land on you do you with gender reveal parties, and that is not for me. So I think my problem with gender reveal parties is, you know, and actually Laura Vanderkam talks about this in the book that I was raving about on Pansy Politics yesterday called Off the Clock, A Guide to Getting Less Done and Feeling Less Busy. It's got a kind of a cheesy title, but it is such a philosophically beautiful book. And she talks about expectations and how they're the source of so many problems in the way we perceive our time, the way we perceive our lives, and specifically with parenting, which was another um, extensive sort of conversation I was listening to on Rob Bell's Launching Rockets 16 Observations on Parenting. So all these places I was listening to expectations and parenting. And I think the my issue with gender reveal parties is it just plays into our worst instincts about expectations and parenting. And that is a, it is a devil's playground, y'all. Take it from one, someone who had to learn, who, who continues to learn that lesson the hard way. Just bringing expectations into parenting children is such a disaster waiting to happen. And so I think you see at gender reveal parties, that this idea that one or the other is a celebration based on all these stereotypical assumptions and expectations about what it means to either parent a little boy or a little girl. And that's just, it's a bad idea. I just think it's a bad idea. Again, from a person who's like lived why those expectations can be emotionally burdensome and harmful. So I, I guess that's my issue is I just think they're so tied up in we're celebrating that it's a girl, which means we're celebrating that we're going to get to do all these things. And look, you do you. Maybe there are people that have gender reveal parties that that's really, it's not anything about that. 
then because I think, you know, when you're having a baby, I mean, you just kind of want to celebrate the child and that can mean all different things. And so, yeah, I don't know. I think that it is it speaks to very antiquated notions about gender and can lead to an expectation game, which is problematic in parenting. That's my take. That's my hot take. If you're choosing to receive that news in front of a group of people, though, aren't you just celebrating the child? Like, if you're going to be okay either way, which is what I would interpret from having a bunch of people around for that kind of party. But it's like you see so many times that it's like they're not really okay. Because that's the thing. I think that people tell themselves that they're okay no matter what, but that it is majority one way or the other. But I do think there are a fair amount of people just because of our culture who do bring expectations to it, even if they think they don't. And in that heightened emotional environment, then those expectations are revealed, you know, and then you're like, oh, and you don't want to be like disappointed in front of a group of people. And even if you think you might not be, you might. And I I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I don't I don't have super strong feelings about it. Like I said, I can see them being not super healthy for people, but I also can I also am not going to begrudge people that time if if it's meaningful to them and it creates some good memories. And I think you can have parties without stuff. I talked about this on Pantsuit Politics a little bit. For my three-year-old's birthday, I asked people not to bring gifts to make a donation to an, an emergency homeless shelter instead. This year, hallelujah, people, Did people honored, do it. People <gasps> honored my request. Wow. So Ellen got just a couple of things from grandparents, you know, the people who are very closest to her, but they all got her very small gifts and useful ones. She got some paint. She got some colored pencils, you know, like just really appropriate things. And when her party was over, I looked at the, the handful of things that she got and thought this was lovely. Yeah. It was really it was so much nicer than the parties that have ended where I have had more stuff than Christmas mm-hmm. to think about where am I going to put this? And oh my gosh, we have to write all these thank you notes and whatever. It was really, really nice. And so I want to say like, I think you can have a baby shower without stuff. I think you can have all kinds of parties without engaging in gift overkill. And I'm a huge proponent for that, for that as well. Yeah, I agree. And also, you know, side note, in case you didn't listen to my story, sometimes it could be wrong, everybody. (laughs) That's right. Sometimes the sex revealed could be wrong because they get it wrong like they did with me twice. Well, there's a darker side to this, too, that we got some messages about as well. One listener wrote in to say, my father wanted a girl. And while he never told me directly, it was well known to me. I don't know exactly how to articulate my thoughts on this as a 36-year-old man. Mm. As the child and as the adult today, I have little to no emotional connection with him. I guess men too have gender disappointment. I've lived with being the disappointment for a long time. This is the first time I've ever spoken or written about it. And that message, I read it over and over. It really affected me because I can't imagine what it would be like to have gone through something like this and never processed it so openly the way that you process it, Sarah. Yeah. I feel comfortable saying that my boys don't feel like they're disappointments. <laughs> I feel pretty confident in my parenting, the emotional lives of my children in my home, that they don't feel like that. And we, but we do talk. It is a thing that they know and we talk about. And I think that the the risk and the danger you see is when people don't talk about it and when people are forced to just sort of carry this emotional weight and never ask and never be welcome to say, 
hey, wait, is this what, how you feel about me? Because something tells me that that father, if at, you know, I don't know, but something tells me if asked outright, hey, am I a disappointment? Did you not want me because I was not a girl? The answer would have been like, oh, yeah, for sure. I don't love you because you're not a girl. You know, I don't think there are very many people, parents that feel that way. That segues pretty well, I think, to a message that we got in response to a conversation we had on Pantsy Politics, but I wanted to bring over the nuanced life. On Pantsy Politics, we were talking about income inequality and this rubber band effect of growing up in poverty and how easy it is if you are starting at the bottom of a ladder to be pulled back down, just like if you're starting at the top of the ladder, it's easy to be pulled back up when you have setbacks. And Megan wrote to us and said, just like the rubber band of financial security can either hold you up or pull you down, the rubber band of emotional insecurity seems to always be pulling against me as I try to break the cycle with my own family. While others have family members who keep in touch, step in to help with childcare, or just offer emotional encouragement, The lack of those things as I parent my own children can be very difficult and painful at times. In college and young adulthood, it was less noticeable because my peers all made a family when we were out in the world solo for the first time. I have noticed a tendency among my friends to retreat to the safety of family as we have entered this new phase of life. Mm. And as someone without that network, we don't have that safety net to fall on. Financially, we are okay. But I can't imagine what the toll of being in both of those boats would be, not having the emotional security or the financial security to make up for it. And I got another email from a listener who heard my comments about kind of family duty and how sometimes that sense of duty can be very toxic. And she, I think, echoed some of the sentiments that Megan is expressing, that when you, even if you have a a comfortably secure family in terms of everyone's financial needs being met, families really hurt each other a lot. And that, that hurt is is a generational thing, just like poverty can be a generational thing. Yeah, it's so hard. Instead of acknowledging that and talking about the ways we move forward, we do this really toxic mix of being like, families are the most important thing, and also any conflict just magically solves itself inside a family. Instead of teaching people how to how to tend that relationship and garden it because it's important, we just say it's important so it'll fix itself, which is such a such a recipe for disaster. You're right. And I think that that kind of gets to something that I keep thinking on, which is that we just don't continue to learn anything as adults, especially about some of the most important work that we're doing. I really wish there were more places that are widely known and communally participated in to keep talking about how we work through emotional crises in families, to talk about the kinds of language that we use with our children. You know, it's... I. I I think there's so many great resources now for that, almost too many in some ways, if you really start going into that world. But they are still such a small percentage of the population participating in that stuff. And I think that if we had it on a broader scale, it would be enormously helpful. Well, that is what we're going to try to do here today in that space. And we are going to talk about the ways that we can be there for our friends, sort of the difference between apathy and a lack of empathy when is someone a bad friend when does someone just not know what to say we're gonna get into all that next there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care plush care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe fda approved weight loss medications like wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. 
Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. We received a really, I think, important email mm-hmm. asking us about how to deal with it when you've shared with your friends that you're in the throes of depression. And they respond in ways that are disappointing. Mm. And part of the email said, I guess my question for you guys then becomes, and perhaps there is some obvious answer that I will know as I get older. What are friends obligated to do? What's the difference between apathy and a lack of empathy? When is someone a bad friend versus just someone who doesn't know what to say? There is not an obvious answer that you will know as you get older. Just, I'll just kind of not bury the lead there and say that. I think this is a really hard question. I do think, though, that it is a process that you get better at as you get older, just because you it's almost like you have to be on both sides to understand a better way to engage. You know what I mean? Like you need to be the friend who felt like, I mean, this sounds bad, but like sometimes I think you need to be the friend that like lost the friendship because you didn't know what to say or like maybe didn't lose the friendship, but like, you know, you got it wrong. And then you also need to be the person on the other side of people's bad responses. So you're like, oh, I get how that feels, you know, and that's just a process that comes with time and age and experience to a certain extent. I also think that as you get older, you develop a way to understand what relationships are meant to be in your life for a long period of time and what relationships are meant to be shorter term. Yeah, And you can understand that some relationships come and go without someone being angry or hurt or without it being the worst thing that's ever happened to you because they were just meant to come and go. And that's really hard. And it's kind of counterculture on every level. But we're just not meant to collect people for our whole lives and hold on to every single one of those relationships. And I think it gets even harder when you have small children Um, Or you have something like small children, maybe it's caregiving for a parent. There are all kinds of situations that can become really, really consuming. And it's hard to be a very engaged, good friend when you're in the midst of something really consuming. And, And that has helped me understand, too, that, like, I'm just, I don't have room for every person I've ever loved to be part of my life right now. And they don't have room for me either. And that is okay. There are some relationships, though, that I really do want to be lifelong relationships for me, and I can understand that this person is deserving of grace when they get it wrong, and that the relationship is more important to me than the support that I get from this person. But those those are really hard decisions, and I think you have to really know who you are or be a long way on that journey of really knowing who you are and what's important to you. To be able to feel that. So, again, referencing this amazing book I read that everybody should read off the clock. One of her fundamental principles is people are always a good use of time. And then she says, while people are a good use of time, time is still ultimately limited. And so the hard truth for these people whose lives are people-focused is that not all relationships are going to last through the years when you are building a career or raising a family or doing both. Not all relationships will last through moves or career changes. Some winnowing is natural as you discover which people you were close to because they truly deepen your spirit and which people you were close to because it was convenient. You may also discover along the way that some people are never going to deepen your spirit. 
Most friendships and family relationships, for that matter, get better with work, but sometimes the work required is more than seems worthwhile. That's okay. The goal is quality, not quantity. The goal is figuring out which relationships are worth investing in, even if they are not convenient. And then the goal is to go all in on making these relationships work. And I think that in the midst of something hard, you can sense, at least I feel like in my life, I could sense sort of instinctually or on a sort of level, like she talks about, which relationships deepen my spirit. And even when those people were a little absent or disconnected in ways, I just, I knew it was still worth it. Now, I am not the best at this. I have held on tightly to relationships that I needed to let go of out of a sense of duty. But I think that there, you still, I still like you feel like this sort of classic Maya Angelou. When I think the quote is always, used in the negative when people show you who they are, believe them like, Oh, well you, that when that person shows you they're selfish, cut them loose. But I think it's also true when the, when you know the friend is good and you know, the friend deepens your spirit, if they get it wrong, give them the grace and just be honest with them and say, Hey, this really hurts my feelings. You got it wrong. Can you try again? Can we try again? Can we work through this? She does the story in the book of two female friends and the one friend who's like from the beginning was like, no, see, you're flaking on me right now. And this is not going to work for X, Y and Z. And that is so hard in the moment. But it is such a gift to a friendship when you can just say, hey, I was hurting and I felt like you didn't care. Can we talk about it? I think it's also important, and I'm struggling with how to say this because while I have not had the experience of the kind of depression that prevents you from living a normal life, I have gotten, and see, even as I say that, I'm like a normal life. What does that even mean? But the kind of depression that keeps you from getting out of bed and functioning the way that you want to function and doing the things that you want to do, I have not dealt with that. I have dealt with, I think, Uh, some level of depression. And so I know that when you're in it, it is really hard to do what I'm about to suggest. I also think it's worth saying, what am I obligated to do when I need something from my friends? Because healthy relationships are not made of grading someone's reaction to us as right or wrong. Mm. They are made in many ways through the continual process of two people learning to tell each other what they need from each other. Mm-hmm. And so I think even when you are in a state where you really don't know the answer to that question, saying that helps deepen the relationship. Mm-hmm. I love that expression, Sarah, of someone who deepens your spirit. You deepen other people's spirits as well when you're able to say, I need you. Yeah. And your own. Like, I just think it's not just about the relationship deepening your experience, I would not ask someone to reach out and say what they needed just for the service of the other person. And what right. I mean by that is it helps you too to put into, you know, it's it's dragging the emotions from the feeling side of your brain over to the part of your brain that needs to articulate it in words. Just that alone, I believe, is positive. I truly believe that. And the belief that you are worthy of someone else's help is a hard one. That is a lifelong Mm -hmm. exercise for me to believe that I deserve the help of the people in my life. And serious depression is telling you constantly that you don't. Yeah. So so that's why I want to be careful and not make it anyone's fault if they're not getting what they need from their friends because – Because I get that I'm talking about something that sometimes we're not capable of. And I'm wondering if we can have more conversations about this as a culture 
So that maybe as the friend in that situation, you can say, I'm not sure what to do. And and as the person needing support, you can say, I'm not sure either, but I really need you to care. I just mm-hmm. need you to know this and I need you to care with me. Or for those of us who can reach out to say, I don't know what to do, but I really love you and I really want to be here for you in any way that I can. I had a friend for a while who was going through a really hard time. I did not know how to be helpful. I just called in the mornings to say, have you eaten breakfast? Mm. Have you taken a shower today? And I don't know if that was helpful or obnoxious, but I kept doing it because it was the best way I knew how to say, like, you are important and you matter to me. And you matter to me in the sense that I am thinking about you in the most um, fundamental ways right now because I want you to be healthy and okay and happy during what I know is a really difficult time for you. The relationship sort of lessons I've learned over the time to- over time, and I still do this, is that it's not my job to fix it. Like I'm a fixer and I really want to show up and be like, I'm going to fix this. See, here are my ideas for how to fix your problem. And sometimes people just don't need that. And I think a lot of us, when we feel like we can't fix it, think we'll just won't, we won't say anything. That'll just make it worse. One of the favorite stories I've ever heard um, was Joan Didion, who wrote one of the best books on grief, A Year of Magical Thinking, that I've ever read, and I highly recommend it to anyone. If you're a human being, you should read it. Um, the book is about the loss of her husband and her daughter, and both in a very short period of time in the, in the um, journey through grief. And it was turned into a one-woman play. And she came every single day to the rehearsals and to watch the play. And a reporter asked her, isn't it difficult to come and watch these rehearsals and listen to this and and think about this t- terrible time in your life. And she looked at the reporter and said, what, because I'm not thinking about it anyway. And I think that that's the trap we all find ourselves in is we think, oh, we'll bring it up. No, no, they're already thinking about it. If they're going through a hard time, you're not drawing attention to it. It's a hard time because it's it's taking all of their attention anyway. And so you're not going to hurt them by bringing it up. And I think that's like a really important thing. It took me a long time to learn and to, and that I'm not still not always good at is that I'm not calling attention to something that's already not hard and trying to fix it doesn't make it easier. And I think that it's important to understand if you are a fixer, that in some spaces, people interpret your genuine effort to offer a solution as an attack, Mm. as though I'm too stupid to have thought of this or I don't want to solve my problem or whatever. I mean, a really hard thing when you are struggling with something is that you have all kinds of instincts telling you that everything is your fault and you're wrong about everything. And so when someone comes in and tries to help, it just reinforces those voices this person thinks I'm dumb too. This person thinks I don't care. You know, this person doesn't, it's just, it's ugly and it's awful. And so I think being able to step back and see that like the way that I think I might be able to best support this person isn't the way that they can best be supported in this moment. And that, that's the, like the tough work of relationships that you want to invest in for the course of your life. I was thinking back on a post I wrote about my dear friend, Annie, whose child at the time was suffering from a cataclysmic seizure disorder. And it was very scary. And, you know, I kept saying all these sort of empty things to try to make it better and to fix it. 
and I wrote at the time, eventually it became very clear that that was not the case and that one of the people I loved most in the world was in a huge amount of pain. I wanted to help her. I wanted to say the perfect thing. I wanted to fix things. Then I realized that doing anything was really not an option. At one point, a doctor had mentioned the possibility of a very scary degenerative disease that could possibly end Colin's life at a young age. As my friend faced the unthinkable, I made a pledge. I stopped offering empty promises and offered up the only thing I knew I could. I swore to Annie that I would not forsake her. I swore to her that no matter what, how bad things got or how hard or painful or sad her situation became, I would not turn away from her. I know that happens. Friendships, for the most part, are based on shared experiences. Our lives change and shift, and so do our alliances. You find out who your true friends are, as the saying goes. I did not know what was going to happen with her son or it was what was going to happen to her, but I knew one thing. I was Annie's friend, and that was not going to change. And so I thought, I think back at that time, and I think, like, that was just the only thing you can do sometimes is just say, I'm not going to go anywhere. I know this is terrible, and it feels lonely, and you feel like you're all alone, and I don't know what you're going through, but I do know that I will stand here and face it with you. And that's the only thing I can promise right now. And that is something that you were able to verbalize and feel when you were quite a bit older than the person who I think asked us this question. Mm -hmm. And I know that we have a number of people who listen in high school and in college, and we're so grateful for all of you. And I want to say to all of you, your capacity to ask these questions is probably well ahead of your peers' capacity to answer them. True. And probably well ahead of your peers' capacity to show up for you in the ways that they need to show up. And that might be true your whole life. You might always be in a really different place than your peers. And so another thing I want to encourage as part of this conversation is to define friend very broadly for yourself and to understand that people have different places in your lives. There are folks that I am not friends with in the sense of I see them even once a month or I talk to them on the phone even once a month, but they are people that I consider wise counselors and I know that they care about me and that if I had a problem and and brought that problem to them, they would really share something important with me and they would really put their arms around me and love me through a difficult situation the way that I needed to be loved. And and many of those folks are decades older than I am and not actively involved in my life. And that's okay. That I am still blessed and grateful for them and I hope that I contribute something to those relationships in return. And even if I don't, I'm still just blessed and grateful. <laughs> but but you have to be open to that, right? And and you have to be open to it. And I think willing, there was a time in the very recent past when I would not have embraced that as friendship. Um, it's been a learning process for me to understand that I'm, I'm just not destined to have a, a big flock of, especially women friends around me who go see movies together and go shopping together. And so like, that's just not what my life is going to be. But I have, I have many people who deepen my spirit. And so that's a hard thing to understand, especially if you're 20 years old. Yeah. It's just, it's a process, it's a process, man, like everything. It is. And, and I guess on the front of, you know, interpreting the way people come to you as apathy, I just really would encourage you to to assess as objectively as you can a person's capacity. 
for being because what you empathy mean. is a muscle that you just have to keep flexing. There's the, you know, there's not very many po- percent. There's not a high percentage of the population incapable of empathy. Some of us just have to get better at it. And again, I think that's a process of age. Like I said the other day, I, I posted on social media that parenting is staying a million different times in a million different ways. You are not the only person on planet Earth. Adjust accordingly. And it's not like we all have that figured out by 20 or 21 or 22 or 40, 50, 60, whatever, depending on your person <clears throat> or if you live in the White House in your 70s. So I think that it's just, you know, it's hard. I also want to talk about the love languages for a second. I truly resisted the idea of the love languages because I think it's such a cheesy name and I just like rolled my eyes about the whole concept. It has been enormously helpful to me to identify that what I most crave is verbal affirmation Mm. and that that is not what my husband most craves and that in fact it is not what he is most interested in offering (laughs) and and so being able to put some language around all of that has helped me understand that my husband does the kinds of loving acts for me constantly that he most values you know and so instead of being like gosh I wish he would say more Now I can just see his love as love. But if you're like me and you immediately want people's verbal affirmation, friends in these situations will disappoint you more often than not because most people really struggle with having the right words to say in difficult moments. Having the right words to say in difficult moments is like an unbelievable challenge for a huge percentage of our population. So it's worth also, I think, trying to understand different ways of expressing love and support than knowing what to say. That's true. And maybe that's a topic that we should explore more fully in another episode because I think there's a lot to our our differing ways of expressing love and support. But Mm -hmm. as we wrap up today, um, I just want to thank the person who sent us this message for the question. Um, Because I think it's a really important one. And I think as we all process the experiences of losing people like Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain to depression and substance abuse or um, other difficult things that plague lots of people, it's just important to keep talking about it. Yeah. The, The more we can make it normal to say we all suffer and hurt sometimes in ways that we can't fully grasp from each other. That's really important work. So thank you for keeping that conversation going. Sarah, I, in all of my cleaning, found a journal from my experience at the Kentucky Governor Scholar Program, which is something that you do between your junior and senior years of high school. And it was uh, super weird to read what 17-year-old Beth was thinking about during that time. But in the back of that journal, I have tons and tons of quotes and passages that I read while I was there that meant something to me. And I thought today I would share Ellen Kent's How to Be an Artist Advice for Beginners, which we all are. Begin. Keep on beginning. Stay loose. Learn to watch snails. Plant impossible gardens. Talk to stones. Invite someone dangerous to tea. Make friends with freedom and uncertainty. Look forward to dreams. Sit close to the god of night. Swim with the sea turtle into the moon. Run naked in the rain. Swing as high as you can on a swing set by moonlight. Do it for love. 
believe in magic, laugh a lot, have wild imaginings and transformative dreams and perfect calm. Draw on walls, read every day. You are magic. Open up, dive in, be free, bless yourself. You are innocent. Lie in a stream and breathe the water. Climb to the top of the highest tree until you can reach the branch where the blue heron sleeps. Eat poems for breakfast and wear them on your forehead. Lick the mountain's bare shoulder. Put your hands over your face and listen to what they tell you. Thank you so much for joining us for The Nuance Life. We will be back with you on Pantsuit Politics on Friday and right here again next Wednesday. Be sure to send us your commemorations and keep it nuanced, y'all. Nuance Life is produced by Dylan Garvin. Elise Knapp is our production assistant. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. The Nuance Life is listener supported. For $5 a month, you'll receive an extra episode of The Nuance Life at patreon.com slash The Nuance Life. You can connect with us on our website, thenuancelife.com, and follow us on Instagram.